All right. Good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, just so grateful for those of you that are joining us online. Uh, just really grateful that you can be with us today. And we trust that God's word and worship will be powerful and life-changing for us today. So uh, one thing that we wanted to make an announcement about is tonight we're doing a, I guess we're going to call it a sing-along, uh, kind of a time of worship up at uh, Victor and Diana Kelly's home. So if you're free tonight, uh, check the email. If you, don't, um, if you don't have that email, find out a way to call me and I will give you directions to get to the Kelly's house tonight. We're going to start at 5.30. We'll be handing out lyrics for all the songs we'll be singing together. And this is just an opportunity for us as a church family to encourage one another and uh, also to be an encouragement to the Kelly family through the season that they've been uh, walking through. So we want to spend some time walking with them and reminding one another of God's rich and powerful grace. So just thank you so much for being here, and uh, we hope that you can come and enjoy that time with us tonight. Let's pray together, and then Carmelo, our newer, new, new dad again is what it is, uh, is going to be leading us in worship. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you. God, thank you that we can come to you in seasons of incredible uncertainty. Uh, you know, just as a nation, Lord, as, a, as the world that we live in, there is so much uncertainty. And uh, every human leader at some level fails us. And so it causes us, Lord, to long for one who is faithful and true. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning as we think about the concerns that we have, let us remind ourselves of our confidence that is in you alone. Uh, Lord, we never place our hope in people. We place our hope in you. And so that we will not be frustrated, we will not be people of hope deferred that makes the heart sick, but we will know the joy of worshiping and honoring and glorifying you. Thank you that we can say with the psalmist, our God is in the heavens and he does what pleases him. And so, Lord, this morning as we sing, remind us of powerful truths that change our heart and change our lives. Glorify Christ this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's worship together. I once was lost. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to. As I ran, but as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my 
altar for me. Now all I know is grace. We sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Sing, but as I ran. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you lurked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love display, you suffered in For the wrath reserved for me, now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Hallelujah. 
Lord, this morning, that really is in our hearts. Lord, we have a hard time clinging on to you, but you cling to us, God. We thank you, Lord, that you did bear our sins on the cross, that you did die for us, your creation, knowing that we needed a Savior, we needed a forgiveness, we needed a way to come to you. And we thank you, God, that you are not far from us. That I can even tell my little kids, Lord, that Jesus is with you all the time. Even if I'm not with you, if dad and mom aren't with you, Jesus is with you all the time. God, may that be a comfort to us today, no matter what we're facing in our lives, or where we're going in our lives, that you're with us all the time. We can look to you, seek you, pray to you, ask you for things, Lord, ask for help all the time. And that is because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So thank you, Father, that you hear us because of the blood of your Son. That as, because we're forgiven sinners as Christians, clinging to the cross, Lord, asking for that forgiveness. Because of that, you hear us. And it's only because of what Jesus has done. So when we sing, Jesus is my life, it's almost literal, God, that we no longer exist, but that Jesus lives through me. God, we thank you for this time of worship. We ask that you would continue to help us worship through the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to have everybody here. If you have your Bible, I ask you to turn over to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. And we're going to be looking at the whole chapter, which is about 60 some verses. So um, hold on. We probably won't read every verse, but, but it's a great story. Um, I would like to welcome one special guest, and I hope you don't mind me doing this. It might sound kind of personal, but my daughter, Sarah, um, flew in about three weeks ago to be with us for my youngest daughter's wedding from Iraq. And they worked, the government worked it all out to get her here, and she leaves I take her back to Virginia this, after, uh, this evening, and she flies back. So anyway, it's great to have her with us uh, today. We all kind of struggle a bit when it comes to the issue of God's providential guidance. You know what I mean? You're going to buy a new car. 
wondering about that house or that job. And you wonder, what I like to do is just say, rather than go eeny, meeny, miny, mo, I would much rather God just saying that one. Wouldn't you? And a lot of strange things can happen in this area of guidance. This is a true story. I didn't, this comes from another counselor. I didn't experience this, but it's true. This counselor was telling about a time when a young couple came in for counseling. And they sat down and it became very obvious they'd been married a very short period of time. It became very obvious that this, it was God's will now, but it wasn't a particularly wise choice because they were, they were miles apart in every way imaginable. So the counselor just thought it might be interesting to get a little bit of background information. So he said, well, tell me, how did you actually come to um, recognize that you should get married? Oh, the guy said, well, I was reading in the Old Testament. And I came to that passage where, where the Israelites went around Jericho seven times and walls came tumbling down. So I was convinced that I would pick a woman that seemed attractive to me. And I, in my mind, would encircle her seven times and then tell her that God had given her to me. And that's how we ended up getting together. Folks, if anybody uses the Jericho story like that with you, if you're a young woman and a guy approaches you, run for the hills as quick as you can. Okay? That would be a massive misuse of the text. Today, we're going to come to a passage in Genesis chapter 24 where you clearly see God's guidance, providential guidance. And what I want you to recognize is there's some things that are unique to this passage which frankly aren't transferable to us. And there's other elements of this story which are. So what I want to do is is kind of walk through this story um, I mean, I was going to, at one point, I was going to actually call this How to Find a Bride. But I, I, I wouldn't want to say that, so that's why I didn't call it. I, I've seen people call, t- entitle it this way. That's tongue-in-cheek. Um, but I, I want to walk through this and see what God actually does here, uniquely for Abraham, and then ask ourselves the question, what is it that we can take from that as we seek to wait, make decisions that honor God in our own life? Does that make sense? We're going to walk through his first. Abraham was 137. He he died when he was 175. His wife died when he was 137 years of age. Around the time he's 140, what I typically do, frankly, when I read some of these patriarchs, I take their age and divide it by two, and then it kind of works with where I am. Because no one in here is going to live to be 170. You know, I I doubt it. But drop it in half. So that's kind of what I do with their numbers. Um, So he he is, he's 140. And if you remember, Isaac was born when he was 100. So Isaac is 40 years old, or just about, when this particular story takes place. And here's something else to keep in mind. This is what's make this story absolutely unique. All the way through the Abraham story, what is critical is he has to have descendants, right? 
You can't bless the world through your descendants without any kids. You have to have descendants. And you have to have the land. Those two elements are very, very important in the Abraham story. Because it's from the land with all those people ultimately leading to Christ that the world will be blessed. Do you see? So that's all part of what's going on here in the story. And as we read through it, there's at least four times when things get kind of tense and complicated. And you're going like, oh boy, oh boy, what's going to happen now? Okay, so as we walk through this story, the four times we're going to kind of have that sensation. Look at how the passage opens up. Chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. Abraham was now very old. He's almost one, he's almost 140. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Now that may sound a little bit strange to you, but that was a way that they would take oaths in antiquity. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of, of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. If this is Eliezer, and we don't know if it is, but, but if it is, he says, look, I don't want you intermarrying with the Canaanites because they don't worship Yahweh. So that's not an option. Among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. So he's telling his servant to travel 450 miles. And that's not by jet or car. It's by camel. That's a, that's a long time. It's weeks of travel. It's a long time. The servant asked him, because, you know, the servant is thinking out loud. Okay, so I travel 450 miles back to the area where your extended family is. Okay, got it. What if, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Abraham, I have an option that I think is pretty good. Why don't I take Isaac with me? So look what he says. Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Doesn't that make sense? So you want to travel 450 miles, find extended family, and say, my son Isaac, who you have never seen, wants to marry one of your daughters, okay? Well, how would you feel if somebody pulled into town and said, I would like your daughter? Now, do, 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 do you see? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very, very good question from the servant. Abraham responds there in verse 8, make sure that you do not take my son back there. That's not an option for Abraham. Because Abraham doesn't want Isaac to go back there and get caught up there and never come back to the land. Do you see? The land is critical and a descendant is critical. Okay, Abraham, this is a bit of a stretch for anybody. And Abraham goes on. The Lord... The God of heaven. And Abraham says that on purpose because he wants you to know God is over everything. He can pull this off. You might not be able to, but he can. The God of heaven, 
who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Wow. How would you like to be that servant? And Abraham says, look, everything's got to fall in place. If the woman says no, her family says no, you're done. You don't have to, you, you know, this is not, remember that show years ago? I don't know, this maybe dates me. I don't even know when it came out. It was called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Do you remember that thing? Okay, that's not what this servant is supposed to be doing. Okay, you're not, you're not to kind of stealth, go in stealth, find a woman, grab her, throw her back in the cart and take off. You know? No, I mean, that, that's not how it works. No, no. In this story, Abraham says, God will have to oversee the entire process. Otherwise, this will never occur. And if it doesn't, and if somebody says, no, I'm not going, don't kidnap them. Just come back. And we'll have to leave it with God to work it out. So that's the story. That's the first scene. Second scene begins there in verse 10 and following. Listen to what it says. Then the servant left, taking with him 10 of his master's camels. And we know from a later passage in, in this chapter that he also takes a bunch of servants with him too. So there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of people going here because they're carrying all kinds of precious gifts, the whole thing. Taking with him 10 of his master's camels loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim, which is 450 miles northeast, and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time that the women go out to draw water. Can you see it? They have traveled a long distance, 10 camels. I'm not a camel expert. So I have to trust people that are. But apparently these things can guzzle 10, 15, 25 gallons of water. So one place we're saying up to 40. A lot of water. So he, he lines up these camels around this well. They come to the area. 10 thirsty camels. Now listen to this. I mean, I want you to enter into this. This, this at some level feels like it's over the top. But it, it, I want to explain it. Then he prayed, verse 12. Listen to this prayer. Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. Now remember, he could only find a woman that was related, part of his extended family. He couldn't take anybody from that area, right? See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the town people are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please, let down your jar that I may have a drink. I mean, that's nice in itself, isn't it? 
See some old lady, hey, can I have a drink? If she says no, well, she's kind of rude. I don't know if I want her, right? Okay. But he goes way beyond that. And she says, drink, and I will water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I know that you have, been, have shown kindness to my master. It's quite a prayer. If her jar contains about three gallons of water, and I don't know exactly how big her jar was, and there's 10 camels, and they can drink up to, together, up to 250 gallons worth of water. Best I can figure, that's like 80 trips filling up your jar, pouring it into a trough so a camel can drink. Look, I believe in hospitality, but doesn't that sound way over the top? You see, see what I'm saying? So he's saying, God... She doesn't know me. I'm going to see these young women. They've got to get water and get back to their place too. That's, you know, I mean, it, time's running out. It's toward the end of the day. So, so uh, um, I'm going to say this, and she's not only going to give me water, but she's going to give water to all my camels, and I would add, to his servants that are there too. I mean, folks, you're looking at several hours of work for a guy that you don't even know. Now, I've wondered about that. One of the things that's really critical in this passage is that time is of the essence. The servant doesn't have time. In other words, you can never take a passage like this and say, oh, this is a great dating approach to finding a bride. I'm going to find a woman that seems interesting to me, come up with this wild thing that God does, and if it kind of seems to work out, I'm going to say she's the one, and we're going to get married within a month or two. I mean, all of us will look at that and say, not my daughter. I hope you'd say that. But this is unique, folks. This is a special situation. This is for the seed in the land. But this guy is on a mission, and he's moving rather quickly. And he asks a question that will reveal the woman's character. He doesn't have time to go back and live there for months to find out what kind of woman she is. But any woman that would meet a stranger and say... Hey, I'll take a couple hours and give water to all your camels. That's a pretty good woman. That's the kind of woman that's going to need that you're going to need living a nomadic life like Isaac does. Do you see? So this test was not just where merely like, Lord, if she comes through the door and she has green on, I'm going to say she's mine. Or I mean, you know that that that, that that's people people have done it. People have done those things. Don't do it. His test, because time was of the essence, was one that reflected her character. Now, so that's the first tension. What is she going to do? Look at what happens here. I love the way verse 15 begins. Before he had finished praying. Why is that? Because God is at work, isn't he? I mean, this guy hasn't even verbalized the entire prayer that God is already setting up all the circumstances. Do you see that? Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. Now, we know this, but the servant doesn't know it yet. We're told as the reader this very quickly. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. Wow. So just so you know, she would be 
Isaac's cousin's daughter. Okay? Without going through all the stuff. She, Rebecca is Isaac's cousin's daughter. Okay, anyway. We're also told the woman was very beautiful and that she was a virgin. Now, and, and, and again, the servant doesn't know any of this at this point. Except that she's pretty, of course. No man had slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. And so, can you see the guy gets done praying? He opens up his eyes. Whoa. He doesn't know much about her. But he's thinking, okay, God, ready or not, here we go, right? So the servant hurried down to meet her. Please give me a little water from your jar. And then he's waiting. Drink, my Lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, he's still waiting, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all all his camels. Probably 80 trips back to that well. Wow! Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. So for two hours, this guy watched her. And I'm trying to think, what would I think if I was a servant? I'd be thinking, you know, around number 43, man, I certainly hope she's from extended family because I'd hate to lose this one. She, she's pretty. She's a good worker. She works hard. She has a good attitude. Man, alive. She, this woman, she doesn't ever stop. Yeah. But for two hours, he doesn't say a word. All he does is watch her and thinks to himself, yeah, but who's, whose daughter is she? Right? Because if he says, hey, who's your daughter? And she says, oh, so-and-so, or that, that's not related. The whole thing goes south. What do you do then? So listen to what happens. When the camels had finished drinking, verse 22, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca, about half of an ounce, and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels, probably about four ounces. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And he didn't know what she was going to say. Who are you? And we will need a place to stay tonight. He just pushed, puts, his, puts, puts those together. She answered him, I am the daughter of Beth, Bethuel. And he's going, oh, Bethuel. The son that Milka, I know Milka, bore to Nahor. Yes, that's family. That's extended family. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. And at that moment, the guy thought, this is of God. I mean, I, I put out this test to see if she's a woman of character. She has to be from that home. She's both. You know what he does? The man who has prayed 
now praises. Then the male man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Wow! The young woman ran and told her mother's household about all these things. And now we're ready to move into the next scene. But you can see these hurdles, can't you? First hurdle, Lord, I'm trying to find out about what her character's like. Okay, is she, yeah, 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 extended family. Good, good, good. But, but it doesn't end there. If the family doesn't approve, she doesn't go. So you see all these hurdles along the way. And, and, and one of the things I find to be really interesting about this servant is he's passionate, but he's not ultimately manipulative. Do you know what I mean? He does, he's, he's, he's careful. He's wise. And, and, and without, you know, he doesn't steal or anything quite like, anything like that. He goes through the, the appropriate process. Yeah, he's passionate. There's a time frame here. I get it. But, 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 but he's wise in what he actually does. Next scene opens up with Laban. And Laban comes down and he meets the servant and he finds out that he's related and he says, come on back, you know, and we're going to refresh you and your animals and all your servants and you can rest. So the servant goes back with him. And notice what happens here in verse, um, let's see. There's a lot of verses here, folks. Um, Okay, she told, uh, verse 32. So the man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, water for him and his men. Then food was set before him. So, So they're already now, they fed the animals again and so forth. And there they are, and they're ready to have a big meal. And the servant says, wait a second. I'm real, I really appreciate you having me in. You've heard, you've seen what I want to give Rebecca. But I, I, before we eat in fellowship, I, I got to get this thing on, on the table. And here's what's interesting. What the servant does for Laban is he recounts exactly what has happened. Goes all the way back to the time with the encounter with Abraham and just walks Laban through the whole thing. Do you know, this is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And, and one of the things to ask yourself sometimes when you're reading narratives in the Old Testament is um, I, I often think when I read narratives, often what happens with narratives, you kind of feel like you're um, a, a, a cinematographer and you're zipping along and you're doing this panoramic shot, you know? And then there's times when you zero in and zoom in, and then you back off again. This is one of those zoom-ins. Because the writer could have said, he told Laban everything that had happened, and Laban said, good, sounds good, and they ate. I can do that in one verse. This goes on for several verses. And so you ask yourself as the reader, why does the storyteller do it this way? It's, It's what God wanted. Of course it's what God wanted, but it is what they do. And what, what is important is 
for the reader of Genesis, Moses wants us to slow down and hear the story again so we don't miss the point. That God is behind this whole thing. That God is doing something with Abraham and his seed. That God has intervened in a way that is absolutely clear that it is his work. And so he tells Laban, after hearing all this, Laban, so what, what, are, you, what are you going to say about this? And notice what Laban does. Look at verse 35. Um, I'm sorry, let let me go down to verse 40. He replied, The Lord before whom I have walked faithfully will send his angel with you and make your journey successful. Okay, I'm sorry, he's he's still recounting here. Um, He's still recounting verse 45. He's just retelling the story. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder She went down to the spring, drew the water, and I said to her, please give me to drink. See, he's just recounting the story again after his prayer. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I'll water your camels. So I drank. I asked her, uh, so I drank and she watered the camels also. So I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, she's connected to you guys. Then I put the ring in her nose, and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshiped God for what he had done. So he just recounts the whole story. And here's Laban's response in verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered. Now, and what's interesting, Bethuel was the father. Laban's really the lead guy here, so I'm assuming Bethuel might be sick at this point and, because Laban's really carrying the weight of, of the discussion. But anyway, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. In other words, this has to be of God, and it has to be of Yahweh, the God, ultimately, it's going to be the God of Israel, but Yahweh, it's clearly of him. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. And about this point, you're thinking, okay, all these hurdles. Oh boy, which one? God, I'm looking for a woman of character. Got it. She's got to be from the family. Got it. The family's got to be okay with this because this is short notice. And they agree. So now, he's ready to eat. And they have a great meal. And the text says, if, uh, the, verse 54, then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. And the servants thinking, I'm going to get up the next morning and we're leaving. But look what happens. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother, interesting it's the brother and mother here, replied, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or, or so. And, I, and maybe it's the or so that made him a little bit concerned. Then you may go. And the servant becomes somewhat forceful at this point. Careful, wise, appropriate, but he kind of draws a line in the sand. But he said to them, do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, 
Send me on my way so I may go to my master. And they thought to themselves, man, I don't want to see her go so quick. Let's let Rebecca make the final call. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it, which is kind of a good idea, being that it's going to affect her life significantly. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said, Our sister, may you increase to the thousands upon thousands. It was actually more than that, <laughs> ultimately. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. It's going to actually be better than that because from the offspring will come Jesus Christ, who will be king of kings and lord of lords over the entire world. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready, mounted the camels, and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. And traveled another 450 miles by camel. Back down to the area of Beersheba and the Negev. This is uh, one of the ten- most tenderest scenes to me, if you think about it, that comes next. I mean... How are you feeling if you're Isaac? How are you feeling if you're Rebecca? Um, and, and again, our system of dating and so forth works a little bit differently. I, I get it. I get it. But listen to what it says. Verse 62. Now Isaac had come from Ber Leal Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. Would you like to know what he was actually meditating upon? We do know that he's carried a lot of grief over the death of his mother, which has at this point probably been two or three years. We do know that he knows his servant has gone looking for a woman. So I don't know about you, but part of what I'm meditating upon at that time is I'm thinking about my mom And I'm waiting to see what's going to happen. They didn't have FedEx, you know. There was nothing that came ahead saying, hey, got her, coming soon, or something, you know. Nothing like that. All you could do is go out and wander, meditate, pray, talk to the Lord, and ask the Lord what he was going to do. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. So he's thinking, oh boy, the servant's back. Is with somebody? I, you know, doesn't know. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. That obviously would be appropriate um, it, it was like a face mask of the ancient world, if you will. Um, no, no, that's a little joke, whatever. Okay. Verse 66. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Wouldn't you like to have heard that one? 
So again, he recounts everything that happened. He said, I couldn't believe the camel thing. That woman, man, she was zippy back and forth for three hours. I couldn't believe it. I, I, know, I don't know what he said. But, but you know, if I was a servant, I would have just, I said, wow. She, you know, didn't she? And I was thinking the whole time, I hope she's family. You know, whatever. You know, he tells him. So she took her veil and covered herself. I, I, I said that. Uh, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And the story ends. And there, there's, there's a few more scenes here with Abraham, but not much, and then we're going to move into the story of Isaac and his boys. So what do you do with that story? I mean, do we, do we just leave it on the pages of Scripture? Say, man, I'm really got, glad that God is faithful to Abraham. Bummer when I look at my life. Is that what we said? Is there anything that's transferable to us? Oh, yeah. Is God still God? Are you still his child? Does he want you actively involved in furthering his kingdom program, whatever that means, and helping you along the way to wisely make appropriate choices to further his, his purposes? Is that all true? That's all true, folks. So there are things that we can glean from this. Let, let me tell you some cautions. And, and when, I come to a, when, I, when you come to passages like this, on the one hand, You want to recognize God has a message for us here. But I want to recognize both what is unique about a passage and what is transferable from a passage to us. That's important. And I want to compare Scripture with Scripture. And I might say, lastly, you want to ask yourself, where are you on the Bible storyline? And we know so much more than than the servant did it because Jesus Christ has come. All those things have to play in when you read a passage like this. Otherwise... You will have people like that, in, that, that opening illustration I gave, give you. People, I, I've met people who ha, are discouraged with God because they say, I threw out this fleece, I thought it came through, I made this decision, and it was devastating. God is not faithful. Have you ever heard people say that? Maybe you've thought that. Because of decisions you've made. And so we've got to be careful the way we apply a passage like this. I have six children, as you know. Is it possible, after my wife and I were married, that we would have had issues with infertility? And we would have, if that would, we didn't, we had problems with fertility, but but that but anyway, but if we did, I'm just saying if we did, I, I want to be careful because there, there's some really dear people who have. But suppose we had issues with 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 infertility, and suppose Sherry and I prayed and said, God, we know that you want us to have kids. We know it. Abraham was supposed to have kids. Doug and Sherry are supposed to have kids. So God, we will do everything imaginable to make that happen, no matter what. Is there a problem in my reasoning there? Here's the problem. It may not be God's will for Sherry and I to have kids. 
It may not be in God's plan for this single to be married now, although they want to be married now. And so, so the difference is we come to these things with this deep sense. We don't know exactly what God's will is, and we don't want to dictate it. We want to say, God, I, I don't know if it is. Help me to be wise. And, 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 and Father, grant me guidance to, to affirm the, the way that I'm actually moving. Do, do, do you see the difference? And sometimes people have blamed God for something that God was never behind. And so we have to be careful that we don't turn a desire into God's will when we don't know. That's one thing. And I don't have an easy answer for this. Sometimes we say, okay, because let me give you kind of my statement on this passage. I think this passage is saying something like this. Believers can trust God to faithfully guide them as they seek to be faithful to his will, which I don't always know what that is, and wisely dependent upon his guidance in the journey through life. So God, I don't always know what you have for me. I think it might be this, so I bathe that in prayer, and I want to step out and so that everything I do is prayerful. Everything I do is wise. So I consult other mature people in the process. I seek, I read through the book of Proverbs. I read the scriptures. I do all those kinds of things. But a, a believer is always trying to manage these things, isn't he? I remember when I bought uh, the, the home that we have right now in Lancaster. I don't know about you, but when it comes to buying a home, I have all kinds of, I second guess myself all the time. Is that the right home? Well, I see what the history is, but what is the real history? You know what I mean, right? You know, all these questions. God, do you want this for us? We think you do. We're not sure. And you bathe it in prayer and and, and, and then I always say the prayer, my, my last prayer is, God, I think this is the wise thing. I'm going to step out. Stop me somehow. Stop me if you don't want it. That's always my last prayer. And I will tell you countless times he's done that. <laughs> but, but, but you see, there's times, though, when we've made decisions and we think we've bathed them in prayer and perhaps we haven't always bathed them in wisdom choices. We've, we've run ahead of God. Um. I was, the, the ministry I'm involved in back in Lancaster was choosing a very significant um, position for, at our institution. We had bathed that thing in prayer. People had been vetted at, to a point now that we look back on it, but we, we thought they had been vetted and, all, and thought there was a guy that was going to come on only to find out it was an absolutely terrible choice. And had to back out of that thing. And I remember talking to some of my friends about that. Saying, we thought this is what God had for us. And we had to go back and look at that again and say, yeah, but you know what? We were a bit speedy on that, weren't we? We probably should have vetted a little bit more in this area. And, and so you learn from those things. And, and so that, that's part of life is messy, isn't it? You pray and you ask God and you try to make wise choices and sometimes things happen and yet you kind of back out, you reevaluate, but you don't throw God out. You, you learn what are some things we could have done differently. 
And then you step ahead with God to make the next decision. Do you see? And so, want to be careful. Even the fleece that was thrown out by this servant was not just a, boy, if she has green on, I'm going for it. No. It was, I don't have much time. I'd like to find out something about this woman's character. It was actually quite wise. And I know some things. If a young woman comes up to me and says, hey, Pastor Doug, there is this great guy at work that's asked me out and we're starting to date. And, and, and you know, I've been praying and, and, and so forth. I say, good, well, tell me about his, his walk with Christ. She said, well, he's not a believer yet. I can with confidence say, then you can't date him. Because just like they had to go to family, you need to date people in the spiritual family of God. Do you see? Yeah, but it limits my choices. I, I get it. But in the long run, it's always the right choice. So we know some things that are clear, don't we? We try to judge character and so on and so forth. And we pray about it. And we, we, we try to do due diligence. All that needs to, to occur. But in the whole process, we ask God, God work. And you know, I, I, I have thought, I, I've made some bad decisions in my life. Ask my wife. However, when I look back on my life, I can't tell you how many times I've said, God, that was you. I wasn't sure what to do. I prayed, I muddled through. What do I know about cars? I'm going to go for this guy. I think so. I opened the, you know, look inside, whatever. What do I know? And all I can tell you is time and time and time again, I've seen a gracious God do things that only God can do. And has and and his, his, his guided. And so if you say, but I'm confused, here's what, you, here's what you pursue. You say, God, I want my entire life to be about honoring you as your child and furthering your kingdom purposes. That, I know, is your will. When it comes to dating, when it comes to a job, when it comes to that big purchase or whatever the case may be, God, that's all part of my stewardship. And so I want to I be wise. But I can't do it on my own. I need you. I need you to walk with me. And God, when I see you work, because you will work in ways that go beyond what we can even imagine, I will turn back and I will praise you for your good hand. That's how God wants us to live, folks. So perhaps I could say it like this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it pretty well, doesn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understandings. It's so easy for me to put my weight on me. No, no. Let your entire world revolve around God. In, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Can I, can I reframe that? Rephrase it. In every situation of life, ask yourself what it means to know God. So whatever the decision is, because God is the one that is driving my life. God is the ultimate purpose of my life, and I want to take my desires and always submit all that stuff to him. 
in the midst of that, God, every situation I come to, I want to know you, the God who is good, the God who is great, the God who is powerful. I want to know you. I want to learn from you. I want to use your word and, and wise counsel appropriately, God. But in every situation of life, ask yourself what it means to know God. And then what's the promise? The old King James used to say, and he'll direct your steps. Perhaps even better is, he'll smooth out your path. It doesn't mean life doesn't have its complications, and there's times you have to reevaluate because you've made some poor decisions along the way. But when you look at your life overall, what you will say is, this God-centeredness, this wisdom living, this constant dependence upon him, my life is making sense in a way that it never could apart from him. And folks, that's our takeaway from a passage like this. Let's pray. Father, we spend a lot of emotional energy worrying about decisions that we have to make. All of us do, Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm right there at the top of the heap. And Father, we are reminded afresh again in this text that you are the all-powerful, all-faithful God, all-sovereign God, who is in control of everything in our lives. We yearn, Lord, to be men and women that passionately desire the furtherance of your purposes through our lives. We know that's your will, Lord, no question. But Father, we have to make all kinds of decisions in the process. People we're going to relate to, churches we're going to go to, jobs we're going to take, cars we're going to buy, homes, oh, all the stuff, Lord. And frankly, Lord, it's too much for us. May we not presume upon you, Lord, by being unwise. May we think hard. May we talk with others. May we read your word to glean insight on decision-making and what we should be doing. All that stuff is important, Lord. But Father, at the end of the day, may we depend upon you to guide us and, 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 and to protect us when we step into areas where we shouldn't step. We are men and women who are dependent upon you. We want our lives to honor you. And Father, may we be able to look back as Abraham and Isaac and say, he has smoothed out the path before us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.